I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, big tech, a big disappointment this week, far lagging the broader market over the past few days. So is the sector sending a big warning signal? Plus, a silver screen deal, why an online giant could be looking to expand its physical footprint even more and what it could mean for the stock. And in a bonus hour of Fast, our special report on the new American investor. We are talking space, Bitcoin, and EVs with Steve Burns, the CEO of Red Hot SPAC, Lordstown Motors. That is coming up 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight. But we start off with that landmark hearing on Capitol Hill. The CEOs of Robinhood, Melvin Capital, Citadel Securities, and Reddit, and the trader known as Roaring Kitty, all front and center. Kate Rooney joins us now with all the details and all the drama. Kate. (laughs) Hey, Melissa. There were some tense moments, but Robinhood CEO got by far the most airtime. Congress really dug for any motives behind Robinhood halting trades in January. Vlad Tenev repeatedly denied that they were in cahoots with hedge funds. Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements, not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. Tenev did apologize to customers, calling what happened in January, quote, unacceptable. He also defended Robinhood's business model. Tenev said payment for order flow, or essentially selling customer trades on the back end, is really the reason they can provide that service for free. Robinhood was also asked about pressure to meet those capital requirements and highlighted that it could have been a much bigger issue. If uh, if there was forced liquidation, uh, at the very least, it would have resulted in a total lack of access to the markets for your constituents. Not just to the 13 securities that we restricted buying in. Right. So this would have been an enormous catastrophe for Robinhood, correct? And the That's correct. And, and not just Robinhood, but the over 13 million customers that we serve. There, there were also some questions about Robinhood's role in investing and making it sort of like a video game or what they called gambling. The CEO says he does not consider Robinhood and what they do gamification. He says that they take investing seriously. And finally, guys, we've got to talk about Keith Gill or Roaring Kitty. He may have had the line of the day, alluding to that viral moment of the lawyer on Zoom with the cat filter, if you remember that, saying, quote, I am not a cat. He says he's also not an institutional investor or a hedge fund. He highlighted that he is an individual investor and was working on his own. He also says that he's still bullish on GameStop. Melissa, back to you. Well, I'm glad he clarified that, Kate. <laughs> Thank you, Kate Rooney. And, you know, it's interesting exactly. <laughs> uh, to hear him talk about GameStop and his position for the first, you know, whatever minutes, half hour, hour of the of the of the session, you saw GameStop stock actually trade higher on all of his bullish comments. But Guy, what what have we learned today that will benefit the U.S. investor? Nothing that will benefit the U.S. investor. Nothing. I learned that a lot. Of, some people don't know the difference between yes and no questions. Um, it's it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating to see uh, what went down there. I mean, we thought it would be theater. It was theater. I don't think anything that happened today is going to benefit the U.S. investor. Um, but I do think what I learned today is what I thought I knew all along. Uh, the real winners in this are going to be the exchanges. NASDAQ actually made an all-time high today on a dicey tape. You know, Chicago Mercantile Exchange 
even like the Virtu financials of the world, those are going to be the end winners if you're looking to play it vis-a-vis stocks. But in terms of what, what we glean for the investor or for traders in the United States, uh, I think it was it was good theater at times, but I don't think we learned anything new. It was interesting. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, and I asked that question sort of facetiously because I think that a lot of the questioning showed sort of a lack of understanding of how the financial system actually works. There was um, a point in, in, the, in the hearing where Congress, it looked like congressmen and women were, were trying to grapple with the payment for order flow um, system, Dan. And actually, it's not just Robinhood. It's, it's most of these brokerage firms that have this model. And so if one were to attack it, it would fundamentally really change um, how all of these business models work and also change the experience that retail traders would have in the pricing that they get. Maybe. Uh, I mean, listen, Mel, before Robinhood came into the fray, all of those brokers, and, and I'll just mention, I think Fidelity is the only major broker that doesn't sell order flow. Um, they were all selling the order flow and they were charging commissions. So Robinhood comes in, mm-hmm. they got this VC-backed platform. They has, certainly have gamified it. They did not really democratize it. They made it sexy and they made it interesting for new entrants. And that doesn't mean democratizing. And when I hear Cousin Vlad talk about what they've done over the last five or six years, it doesn't really speak to me that they have opened up the financial world in a way that is going to make repeatable sort of behaviors and really give access to long-term capital appreciation, which is really what I think the financial market should be about. So to me, I don't think Robinhood or their CEO did a great job demonstrating what their mission was. And if anything, what they've done is they've made a lot of the incumbent um, you know, brokers less profitable on their own business, but they were all already selling order flow. And Robinhood wouldn't have existed if they weren't able to sell that customer order flow from the get-go. Okay, but is there a greater good? And I'm glad that you mentioned that notion of democratization. Is that something that we're just romanticizing, Karen, do you think? Or, or do you think that, that this has really opened up the financial markets to a lot of people? You know, in Vlad Tenev's opening remarks, he had stated that, you know, a lot of the new accounts were in demographics, I should say, that were underrepresented previously amongst investors in the financial markets, minorities primarily, mm-hmm. women. And that, that to me, is, is a step towards democratization. I hope it is, but I don't think that means that... I, I don't think GameStop was the, the one to get us there. I mean, I feel like... You ever take your kids bowling? Well, your kids are too small. You've never taken your kids bowling. But they have this thing now where there's no gutters. They have these, you know, sort of safeguards where you can't get the ball in the gutter. And I feel like there is this expectation somewhere that new investors should never be able to roll a gutter, you know, roll the ball in the gutter. I've rolled the ball in the gutter many times, metaphorically and actually. And I think that we saw... You know, um, Melvin Capital, who is as sophisticated as they get, losing a ton of money. And there were many um, Robin Hood traders who made a ton of money. I don't think that we saw enough about the Reddit interaction, or I didn't see enough about the Reddit interaction and how, those, how uh, Wall Street Bets worked in creating this frenzy. But I do also feel like, um, you know, where is personal responsibility? You know, taking yeah. out big loans to buy a stock because, you know, you're on a mission, a kamikaze mission to take down Wall Street. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't think we've learned anything new, really. I agree, uh-huh. with, I agree with Guy. The idea of Roaring Kitty, Robin Hood, Citadel. I mean, it's just it's 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 theater. 
it's like the start of a joke. Right. <laughs> it's like, let's say, you know, Melvin Capital read it and Robin had walked into a bar and met Rory and Kit. I mean, it, it is the start of a joke here. But Brian Kelly, in all seriousness, um, you, it's an interesting point in terms of the idea of, of striving or wanting to put up guardrails. But how can you possibly do that? People ultimately uh, are are responsible for their own actions, aren't they? In so many aspects in life and financially yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. What do we need guardrails for? Why are we treating millennials and Zoomers like they don't know anything? They obviously know an awful lot. And just because the system that they want to use, Robinhood, is gamified, does that mean they don't understand what's going on? I, I've been on Wall Street for over 25 years, and I know a lot of professional investors who don't know what's going on. So they're not any different than the retail <laughs> investor. I agree with Karen. I don't think we should have guardrails up. I think you put up a sign at the beginning that says, Achtung, danger, things might happen, you might lose your money, and then go, go about it. I mean, I don't understand what the big deal is. I, what I would say, though, what we did learn is there still is this massive generational divide that is going on. Nothing on that was, reser- was resolved at all today. today. The Reddit traders and the younger generation is going to continue to do what they do, and the older generation has continued to say, oh, it needs to be nice and neat and not... All, all shiny and like a toy uh, and gamified, and that's not real investing. And the Reddit traders are going to say, eh, that's okay, we'll do it our way. Uh, that's what we learned today. Nothing's changed. I mean, there is, a, there is that divide. There, I mean, the expectation for any product to be quote-unquote gamified, I don't care what it is, whether it's your social media experience, whether it's going online shopping guy, or whether it's placing a trade on Robinhood, that is the way of every single app, everything on the Internet these days. So why not also trading paired with the caveat that this is your money and you're responsible for it? Yeah, I listen. Of course, of course, it's gamified. He could say what he wants. He's entitled to his opinion. But when you can do something just sitting around watching, you know, TV with your phone in your hand and you can make bets on the Nick game tonight or make bets on whether GameStop's going to go up or down. What you tell me what the difference is. And to a large extent, um, the fact that you can do it on these smaller devices, that's made it gamification where you don't have to go to a big office building with a lot of different screens in front of you. You can actually do it off your phone. And to the point about warning labels and those types of things, I mean, we, we went down this road a long time ago. I think it really started, I want to say Dunkin' Donuts, uh, when somebody got burned by hot coffee and <laughs> then being forced to put contents of this, you know, of this cup yep. or hot. I mean, is that really what we've devolved into? I, I, I wanted, I actually believe that the folks, the guys and gals on Wall Street Bets, Reddit, uh, Robinhood, they don't want those things. They don't want to be protected from themselves, to use a term that we've heard for a while. So what I really wanted to learn is who was the mastermind behind the Reddit, behind Wall Street Bets? Who was pulling those strings? Because I don't think it was just Hello Kitty by him or herself. Roaring Kitty, not Hello Kitty is very different. Yeah, um, from, whatever, Roaring from, Hello. For much, much more on this story, let's get to former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt. He now runs consulting firm Calorama Partners. Harvey, great to have you with us. Um, I don't know how you feel about guardrails, but you do think that there should be some sort of a warning label, much like uh, you find on the pack of cigarettes or, or on a bottle of alcohol. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to try and protect people from themselves. I think you give people a warning, you tell them what the problem is, and then people have to make their own decisions as to what they're going to do. 
I do think that there could be more responsibility taken by the various players to prevent the kinds of things we've seen. Democratizing the markets is great, but with it comes a responsibility to act in an appropriate way and make sure that the system doesn't veer out of control. What specifically are you talking about and which player in particular? Well, I think first with Robinhood, let's um, uh, be realistic. Um, they ought to require every new customer to do a self-assessment as to their investment expertise. And they ought to um, direct those investors with minimal knowledge to fundamental trading platforms and away from more sophisticated platforms. Now, if those people want to move to more sophisticated platforms, Robinhood has done whatever it can, but at least requiring people to self-assess and then showing them the right platform for their trading activities mm -hmm. is a much better focus than just simply allowing people to trade with the exception of options, which require special uh, findings sure. of whatever they want. I, I totally get what you're saying, Harvey, but at the same time, I mean, you can make the argument that, that we should be giving these sort of self-assessments self before people get credit cards or take out home loans or all sorts of financial products that people get into trouble with because they don't understand what that product is or what it could mean to their finances. And this is just an extension. I mean, if we are to say that an industry is responsible for educating people first or for warning, then this has got to be extrapolated across many financial products, not just trading. That happens to be true. I think uh, all financial products require a certain degree of education and sophistication. We're not providing that to um, young people in our school systems. So people come out into the real world and they don't have the background that uh, you ought to have before you undertake some of these things. I do believe you can't protect people from themselves, but you can at least tell them what they are embarking upon. And that goes with credit cards as well as trading uh, accounts. All right. Uh, Harvey, we've got to leave it there, but it's so great to get your thoughts. I hope to see you soon. Harvey Pitt, the former SEC chair. I asked that line of questioning, um, BK, because the next is where does this stop? in terms of warning people? And at right. what point are people responsible for educating themselves? Or should we attack the core problem? We should, I'm, I'm asking this rhetorically as well. Should we attack the core problem, which is the lack of financial education at an earlier age, not when people are out with the money to spend? Well, uh, yes. Should we have more financial education in, in at younger, let's call it high school? Sure, absolutely. I, I'm not sure that would prevent the problem. Uh, listen, I'm a fan of free markets. I'm a fan of free access. And some of the best lessons I've learned in investing in my career are because I lost money. And it really sucks and it hurts. And you go, boy, that, I'll never want to do that again. So sometimes you need to touch that hot stove just to find out what hot really is. And I'm a fan of that. I don't think adding more regulations or putting up roadblocks or directing people to the right platform for them. Who are we to say that? I, I just, I, I find that to be crazy. I think it's going to add more cost to the system and push more people out. 
And the last thing I would say is let's look at the education and let's just say we have the best education out there in financial services and we're the smartest people ever. Well, those were the people on Wall Street, the smartest guys in the room in 2008 <laughs> and 2007. And look what happened there. So I'm not sure education's really the answer either. Yeah. Uh, Dan? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think we'd all agree that we don't really want to see any more regulation. And so really what we're talking about is financial literacy. And so what we're doing now in a mobile digital age with a group of um, let's call it a, a group of people that are really conditioned to do a lot of things on their mobile apps and they're really into the dopamines of getting a reaction. So, you know, I, I have no issue with that. And I do agree that I think that these people um, on the Internet, I mean, they figured some stuff out that it's taken a lot of people on Wall Street or a lot of sophisticated investors a long time to figure out. But it doesn't make it repeatable. And so I guess my point is that, um, you know, if you're offering now, like you mentioned before, if you're offering easy on ramp but then you're offering margin and then you're offering um, things that really kind of get you um, jazzed up about placing a trade because there's confetti coming down and you're doing it competitively and you're posting it um, on, a, on a meme board and that sort of thing. I think that stuff is problematic. I'm just going to tell you, I've been on Wall Street for 25 years. Every single mania that has happened in the financial markets in that time period has failed, and most of the people end up losing money on it. That's just a fact. If you're telling me it's going to be different this time, I'm telling you it won't. So I'm not railing against this or that. I'm not saying that, that these people should be protected against themselves, that sort of thing, because a lot of very smart, well-resourced people get in a lot of trouble on Wall Street. So my point is, if it's really about financial literacy, then the lesson should be about long-term capital appreciation, not about short-term dopamines gambling on your iPhone. And that's fine, and that's a great message, Guy. But at the end of the day, all these people on Robinhood, all these people on, on, on Reddit, they trade. And I don't think a warning label is going to stop them, or I don't think a warning label would have stopped them from trafficking in GameStop, for instance. No. And listen, I know what Dan's saying 100%, yeah. but my question back to co the collective is, you know, what were we trying to learn today? I mean, the market worked the way it was supposed to work. People, you know, the people on the Reddit platforms, the Wall Street bets guys and gals, most of them, if not a, a lion's share of them, knew more about convexity and, and derivatives and negative gamma than the people that were on the other side of the trade. So good for them. I mean, they seemed to understand exactly what they were doing. So I, I don't know Again, my, my original point is there's a, if there's a villain in this entire thing, we don't know who that person or that group of people is because it comes back to who were pulling the strings mm -hmm. all along um, for the Wall Street bets crowd. That, to me, is a real story that hasn't been uncovered yet. All right. Coming up, Walmart gets a wall up here seeing its worst day since last March. So is it time to take your money and run? We'll get some answers for you. But first, we've got our eyes on a couple of stocks moving after their earnings reports. We'll dig into the numbers, bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast. We've got a couple of earnings alerts for you. Rackspace and Roku, both on the move right now. We've got full team coverage. Josh Lipton standing by with the latest on Rackspace. We start with Julia Borston and Roku. Julia. Well, Melissa, Roku shares are trading higher after hours after the company beat expectations on both the top and bottom line. And this as Roku's active accounts grew faster than expected to 51.2 million. The company's guidance for the first quarter 
revenue of $462 million was also stronger than anticipated. Now, Roku is saying in its letter to shareholders that they are optimistic about the year ahead. That's why they're comfortable giving a formal outlook for the first quarter. But Roku warns about uncertainty further ahead, particularly in the second half of the year, writing, quote, we are mindful that in 2021, year-over-year comparisons will be quite volatile. In the first half of the year, we expect strong financial comparisons as compared to the first half of 2020, which includes early impacts from COVID-19 and the resulting economic lockdown. While in the second half of the year, we anticipate much tougher comparisons. Now, CEO Anthony Wood, though, made it clear he's confident about the potential for streaming going forward, saying they anticipate Roku will benefit from further cord cutting and that he believes that 2020 was a pivotal year to start the streaming decade. Melissa? Julia, thank you. Julia Borston on Roku. Uh, Dan Nathan, what do you make of this move here? Listen, this is one I've missed and I've been wrong. And I've said, put this on the scrap heap of, of kind of tech media sort of stuff like TiVo or something like that. The stock's up 36% of the year. It's up 127% since the beginning of November. It trades at 22 sales. It's got a $58 billion market cap. But they just told you they're going to do about 460 in revenues in the Q1, but they're going to lose 45 $46 I think we lost Dan. Technology, you know, it never is there for you when you need it. Um, Rich Greenfield, though, was pointing out in the release, um, it's its move towards content and being able to um, creatively and, and, you know, effectively outsource or source content for its channels was becoming a content company, which I think is an interesting notion, Guy, because prior that was sort of the knock on it that it didn't have its own content. Maybe Dan should have downloaded the Roku application from the Apple uh, store, and that would have helped him with the call. You know, he made fun of me a couple of years ago. He boomered me, and he, he yep. threw me on the trash heap. Yep. And, that, and I'm not suggesting I understood the Roku story, but, I, I, you know, I thought that this was one of those things. People were looking at it the same way a lot of people were looking at Square in their early days, just sort of this hardware thing, and it's become much more than that. To Dan's point, I mean, this was a $225 stock at Halloween, it's doubled since then. Valuations, nobody could get their arms around a year ago. You can't get it now. It's a growth story, and the growth is there. So I say stay with Roku at these levels. Yeah. Karen, in terms of streaming and or content, where would you go? Uh, I guess stream. Well, they're obviously going with both, right? Um, I guess streaming and sort of be somewhat agnostic as to content. You don't necessarily have to pick right. But, um, I mean, to me, the interesting thing about this quarter, or more about where the stock's trading, this was a really, really strong quarter, right? Very big beats and uh, nice ARPU beats and um, user. And, and still the stock now, it's only about where it closed yesterday. So the bar was really high. They met it. They exceeded it. But maybe it's just too expensive because that was a great quarter. And if that's not enough, maybe it's just a little too expensive. For me, I would have said that, though, a couple hundred bucks ago. So I missed this one absolutely as well. All right, let's move on to Rackspace earnings. Josh Lipton joins us with the details. Josh. So, Melissa, that one had enjoyed a nice run heading into this print stock and rallied about 60% over just the past three months. Down sharply, though, right now in the after hours. So the results beats on the bottom and the top. Solid 
full year revenue guidance relative to expectations, though EPS guidance weaker than the street was looking for on this one. Kevin Jones, the CEO on the call, basically arguing that Rackspace is in the sweet spot. Customers don't just pick one cloud platform. He says they want to diversify. Multi-cloud has exploded and will continue growing. Gives Rackspace, he's arguing, years of continued growth opportunity, but the stock down hard right now. Melissa, back to you. Yep, down 10%. Josh, thanks. Brian Kelly, uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think Josh hit it on the head there, right? The, the guidance was not as good as what everybody yeah. expected, and we've had this rally. So you're in this environment where, uh, one, fundamentals don't really matter, and you can get these massive rallies up, but, boy, you better hit those numbers. And, you know, I look at this very similar to Roku, right? So this had bad news. We'll see how it trades tomorrow. Roku maybe had good news and trades down. That might be one that I sell, whereas Rackspace, if it trades down and then rallies back up, I might buy that one dan nathan's back you're unfrozen you're good to go hey guys yeah hey <laughs> you, you know it's really interesting so we're talking about the difference between these two companies there's no similarities whatsoever but i think bk makes a really good point is one has uh, really fast growing um revenues fast growing users and it's very unprofitable it has an eye-popping market cap and multiple to sales and then here's rackspace which comes out back after being private it's got a ton of debt um, it's got maybe high single digits growth. It trades at a market multiple. It's in a good spot. Seems kind of like it makes sense. But that's not what investors want right now. I mean, they want the hyper growth and they don't care about valuation and they really don't care about earnings right now. So I think it's really a function of where we are at this stage in the market. Guy? If the great Carter Braxton Worth were with us, he would point out that in August, uh, Rackspace topped out around 21 and a half, sold off. In December, similar high. And so levels that had been resistance on the upside become support on the downside. That's a Louise Yamada-ism, by the way, as well. And so if this were to get down to that 21.5 level, to BK's point and to Dan's point before he went into the ether, uh, you buy it at that level. I think he's back in the ether, actually. Um, Rackspace, we oh, should is. know. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it. <laughs> is uh, after our session lows here, now down 11%. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Tech's been the high flyer in the markets over the past year, but has it had its wings clipped? What's behind the recent pullback? And what does it say about the strength of the market? And later, is Amazon eyeing its next big deal? The rumor that sent one stock surging today. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back uh, to Fast Money. Rough day for the markets. All the major indices closing in the red. Disappointing jobless claims numbers suggesting there may be longer to go on the road to recovery, particularly in the labor market. Big tech leading the sell-off today with names like Facebook, Apple, and Tesla all falling around a percent. Is this the beginning of a bigger fallout? And we ask this question not because of what happened today specifically, but because tech has been weak all week. This as we are watching 10-year yields go and stay at around 1.3 percent. Karen, what do you what do you think? Well, for the, the FANG names that I own, I think of them more on the value side. So like an alphabet, and that's down maybe a little today, but mm-hmm. not a lot. Facebook, I think, is more specifically down on maybe it's this Australia publishing situation, uh, as well as, you know, some of the um, just the, the political cross currents involving Facebook. Um, for names like Apple, I think this issue of rates going higher and maybe the market multiple needing to come down 
that that kind of makes sense to me. I'm long. Obviously, I don't like it to trade down, but I'm not selling it right here. I really believe in the fundamentals for me of the story of the 5G um, evolution and obviously the services business as well. I'm not in it for the car, just so you know. And um, I'm going to hang on to it, but I also am looking for value that's much more reasonably priced. So for me, one that I've talked about a bunch of times, I bought some more today, is FedEx trading at a you know, mid-teens multiple, vastly different than mm-hmm. some of the high-flying tech names. Yeah, yeah, and that really speaks to this notion of a rotation brought on by higher interest rates. And Guy, you know, it's interesting to see, um, you know, the Fed say, you know, inflation's not going to be a problem, it's going to be a temporary spike, et cetera, et cetera. Big banks saying tipping points in terms of the Treasury yield going to be much higher. You know, J.P. Morgan says 2%. City says 1.7%. Nomura says 1.5%. And we're at 1.3%. What do you think unfolds here? Yeah, I'm more in the Nomura camp at one and a half percent. To me, that you know that had been again that, for years that had been support on the way down. Finally broke it. You saw how low rates went. So we'll see what happens if and when we get there. And by the way, I do think we're going there. And I do think, listen, cheap, low rates, zero interest rates has been one of the one of the pillars of this tech trade. Not entirely the 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 only foundation, but one of the pillars and. You knock that out, then some of these companies have to stand on their own. Karen makes a great point. For Google, I don't think that's really an issue. I think Facebook has their own issues. Apple, maybe a little bit more so. And then we're going to talk later in the show about sort of supply constraints around semis. But make no mistake, if rates continue to go higher, I think it's really negative for the NASDAQ in general. Yeah. I mean, Apple is down for the week by 4%, whereas Alphabet is actually up by a half a percent, which really tells you sort of the bifurcation that's going on within technology when it comes to valuations, Brian Kelly. Yeah, so, and, and as rates goes up, that's gonna, it's gonna hurt valuations. I mean, the whole trade that we've had, frankly, since really 2008, 2009, is there is no alternative to stocks. You can't get yield anywhere else, so why not get it in the stock market? If rates go up and as rates go up, that's gonna take some buyers out of the stock market, maybe back into bonds to get those yields. Now, where yields go, in my view, I think we're going closer to 2%. If you look at 10-year yields versus the CRB, the Commodity Index, the Commodity Index has absolutely ripped higher this year, and 10-year yields have diverged. They're going higher, but not anywhere close to how high the Commodity Index has gone. And so I think we go to 2%. I think the Fed panics. I think they cap rates at 2% uh, for the foreseeable future, just like they did during the 1950s. And that's going to make gold fly and all of that. I don't know what it's going to do to the stock market, um, you know, because if we do get some sort of inflationary situation, I do not agree with Janet Yellen. I do not think the Fed has the tools to stop this type of inflation. Guy, what happened to gold, though? It's still not working. Yeah. And again, if you had told me all the things would take place, you know, six months ago, where's the price of gold? I would have said easily north of the all time high 2400, if not north of 3000. And here we are languishing. You know, there are a lot of people that say, and I'm not in this camp necessarily, but I understand it, that, you know, Bitcoin has taken a lot of the um, a lot of the juice away from the gold market. A lot of people put their efforts towards that. That does make sense in terms of what's happened. There are a lot of people that say these higher rates are actually negative for gold. Maybe that's true in the short term, but in the longer term, I think there's going to come a point where it flips. And I do think it's going to be that one and a half percent level in the 10 year 
both for the stock market and the gold market. So definitely I've been wrong for months now in gold, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean the gold trade is over by any, by any stretch. Yeah, by the way, we'll be talking much more about Bitcoin and gold and that relationship in the 6 o'clock hour Fast Money tonight. Coming up, a reality check for Walmart. The worst day since the market bottom last year. Is it time to cash out or buy in? We've got some answers. And don't forget, as I mentioned, we've got a Fast Money special report kicking off at the top of the hour. Congressman Ro Khanna and the CEO of Lordstown Motors joins us as we dive into the new American investor. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Walmart falling 6.5% today after missing earnings estimates for the latest quarter. What was its biggest, uh, that was its biggest drop since last March. The big box retailer did see digital sales rise 69% in Q4, but warned that sales growth overall would slow this year. Um, Karen, I'll go to you. What disappointed you the most? Mm-hmm. So the spend was really what this, to me, what this call was all about, right? They had that big top line revenue number, but why are, why are we not seeing more to the bottom line? Because the spend was big and it will continue to be big. And they sort of make no apologies for that. And, you know, they, they specifically called out labor and price pressure on wages. And I think them being a leader and going to $15 um, is important for the company. I don't know exactly if they're doing that everywhere, but so labor will be a big part of why they won't be as uh, why the earnings won't be as good for this year as people as expected. So there's the buyback uh, was also, I thought, interesting. That's a big buyback. So to me, when I think about their business, I think about they're, they're obviously evolving and they've been doing that for a few years. In fact, I looked at a press release from three years ago, the last time they missed this big and the last time the street was this disappointed and the stock was down 10 percent, three years ago, almost to the day. And they had a lot of similar explanations. We're spending in, in our business mm-hmm. and we're going to continue to do that because we think it's worthwhile. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They've told us they want to spend on their business and they want to spend on buying their own stock. So I like that. I feel like the stock wasn't crazy expensive. The hit today is it's not unwarranted, but two multiple points. I feel like it's kind of a lot. I think analysts will express disappointment, probably already some today and more tonight. And so for me, this is a three day rule. Today being day one of the three day rule, I'm probably going to look to buy more on day three. Sometimes if it trades down a lot, I can't help myself. And day two, I jump in there. So that's where I am on this one. I'm not sure. Target was down as well. I'm not sure if there's a necessary read through to Target. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, a little disappointing, but certainly not a disaster. When I read through the release this morning, it reminded and then saw the stock reaction. It also reminded me of how the street receives Amazon when it announces in a you know, earnings report that it's going to invest in the business and, and that you need to believe that in the long term, those investments are going to position it better um, for, for that time when it comes to distribution centers or labor, et cetera. Guy, so what, what do you make of Walmart and the extra costs that it's going to incur? Yeah, well, you folks that were watching last night and were paying attention, you'll, everything Karen said she was worried about last night came to fruition today, so she was spot on. And I'm with her in terms of the spend. They're spending on the right things, and the $20 billion stock buyback is not insignificant. And the sell-off could have been worse, quite frankly, on, on today's tape, although that may be what made today's tape go lower. So I think you buy Walmart on the weakness. I don't think the story has fundamentally changed. If you look at their inventories year over year, it's only up 1.2%. That, to me, augurs well going forward for margins and the like. So it's unfortunate. I think, you know, Karen was right to be concerned about this, but I don't think the sell-off was all that bad at all.
All right, coming up, a box office bargain. We'll tell you why options traders are going all in on shares of AMC. And February is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. Here is the host of NBC's American Ninja Warrior discussing the importance of financial education for the black community. There are too many people in my community that the highest level of investment that they know of are CDs. The knowledge isn't there. Sometimes I wish I could just be the black financial Superman and just go to everyone's house and say, hey, here are the resources. But the resources aren't available to a lot of people in my community because you have to make a certain amount of money. And we've got to tear down that wall. I want everybody to get in. I want everybody to win. Welcome back to Fast Money. A wild ride for shares of AMC today, rising as much as 12 percent on speculation that Amazon might be acquiring this Reddit darling. Rumors of a deal first surfaced last May, but of course nothing ever materialized. This wouldn't be the first time Amazon has expanded a physical footprint. Of course, it purchased Whole Foods in 2017. Does this make sense? Dan, I will go to you. Not, not at all. I mean, I, I just don't know what Amazon would be buying other than a massive pile of debt and some real <laughs> estate. You know, I mean, they might have some play. I, I mean, that's really all it is. I mean, this stock is up 150 percent from its uh, on the year. It's down 70 some percent, you know, um, from this year's high. Um, so to me, with 11 and change in debt and a $2.4 billion market cap, you tell me what their real estate's worth and some of the deals that they have or whatever. But to me, it makes absolutely no sense. This would not be something that Amazon investors should be excited about. Well, Guy, in theory, it could, it could you know, debut its shows and movies and all that mm-hmm. in theaters. We get that Amazon Prime thing. You, you do. Know, my you know daughter how to told use me it? how to use it. Oh, yeah, it's... Okay. Yeah, it's apparently you need a smart television to do it. Unfortunately, what they don't tell you is you also need a smart person watching it to learn how to do it, which I am not. I'm with Dan on this one. But, you know, for Amazon, on the flip side of that coin, it's a rounding error. What I found fascinating today, I think, if I'm not mistaken, AMC actually closed lower on the day. So clearly, you know, two weeks ago, you said it's up 15 percent. Two, three weeks ago, this thing would have been up probably 50 percent on news like today. Uh, and, and you didn't see the follow through. So in this case, uh, although, you know, prob- Dan's right, it probably doesn't make sense. I think the, the way the stock traded today reinforces his argument. Yeah. Karen, what do you make of this all? Great skepticism as well. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I mean, I hear you. Maybe they could, de- you know, debut Amazon Prime content or they could do it streaming. That seems to be working. So in general. So I, I don't get it at all either. I feel like it's a, um, I don't know, rumor mongering to maybe just make money off of it without, there, there, there's no smoke there. I don't think there's fire. Watch, they'll sign a, a merger agreement tonight, but um, <laughs> I'm quite skeptical. All right. Well, deal or no deal, the options market is looking pretty optimistic on AMC these days. Let's get to Mike for the action. Mike. You know, historically, when we talk about options volumes, we're looking at the big players. What are they up to? Do we see big institutional buys and sells in the options markets? And, of course, in a lot of stocks lately, the big volume isn't coming from big players. It's actually coming from a large number of smaller players. And that's what we're seeing in names like GameStop Still, Palantir Still, and AMC. In fact, the options that we're talking about today are the six-strike calls that expire just tomorrow. So very short-dated. Those were actually the fourth most active 
single stock options that traded today. Those traded over 72,000 contracts, and buyers of those are obviously expecting that some news could come right out and that stock could be trading north of six and a quarter because they spent 25 cents in premium. But of course, as everybody on the panel was just talking about, the enterprise value of this company is about $13 billion. And you could have bought the whole company lock, stock, and barrel for about half of that two years ago when their revenues were three times what they are today. So it's kind of hard to understand why Amazon might do something like that. But of course, when the rumors start flying, the stock might do that too. And I think that's what these options traders might be betting on. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, final trades. Check out shares of MP Materials. Las Vegas-based rare earths metals company got a boost earlier today after the Biden administration announced it would review overseas supply chains for semiconductors. Rare earths, a key component in that process. There was also the report earlier this week that China could look to, uh, to restrict exports of rare earths in order to sort of get back at defense contractors like a Lockheed Martin, this according to the Financial Times. Uh, Brian Kelly, an oldie but a goodie, the rare earth sector. But here we are. The MP is a SPAC. <laughs> It's a hot one, uh, and it's in a, it's in a, a sector that, uh, where there's not many competitors. Yeah, and yeah, it, precisely. Uh, rare earths have a special place in BK's heart because I love that Molly Corp, tra- Molly Corp trade. That thing was an absolute monster until, uh, Melissa, you asked the CEO uh, if the company was overvalued, and he said yes. And then it was all over. But I still like this one here. MP Materials bought Mountain Pass mine, which was Molly Corp's big mine. And you got to think about this reshoring effect. I think with the supply chain issues that we're having, it makes an awful lot of sense for the U.S. to secure those rare earth materials. And then if you think about the psychology of the market, there is only one way to play rare earths. It's MP. So I really like that one. Yeah. So you can go MP here or also, I mean, this theoretically could address the semiconductor supply chain in general and then semiconductor manufacturing guy. And that has been an issue. Um, and if you think that reshoring is going to happen and that fabs will be built, then maybe uh, capital equipment players are, are the play here. Look at, look at you connecting dots. No doubt about it. And what, some of the other plays, by mm-hmm. the way, are names like Micron, who wins to this as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Daiwa Securities initiated today with a $140 price target. Lamb Researches. So there's a lot of different ways to go. But I will tell you, I'm, I'm with BK on this one. One of my favorite stories of of your long tenure here at fast money is how you so elegantly um asked that question like you're the only two people in the room tell me are you overvalued and he said yes i mean <laughs> week later stock was down huge i mean that was genius i actually but I, I, digress. I think the ceo i mean i think he actually said that they were in a bubble um so use the b word <laughs> yes. um dan but back to the semiconductor <laughs> trade that's ancient history <laughs> Dan's frozen again. Dan is frozen once again. Karen. You think he's faking it? I think he's faking it. He's faking it. He's just like freezing. Just like. Yeah. That would be crazy. I'm like, sorry, can't hear you. Yeah, I think he's faking it. Uh, Where would you go in semiconductors? Oh, God. I mean, I found the, the whole space overvalued, so I don't yeah. have exposure. But I've said that for a while. You know, I'm much more in the in the downstream of who's using semiconductors like a GM. I mean, this is a very unfortunate situation, not just for GM, for all the autos um, to be when they should be, you know, producing full out. Um, so I've missed the semiconductor run, the last part of it hugely. 
staying with the down, the, the semiconductor users, not All the right. makers. Let's get to the final trade. I would go to Dan, but again, he's frozen. So I'll go to Brian Kelly. What do you say? Baking. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's PayPal. Uh, I think they've got a great uh, foothold here, especially in the cryptocurrency space. Karen. Yeah, so Walmart, we talked about it. I, I'm interested in buying it lower, and I think I will get that chance, so wait, be a little patient. Guy. Maybe Dan needs a new router. <laughs> I just love <laughs> you know router. what that is? Rack space around 22. No, of course not. <laughs> All right, that does it for us. This hour fast, don't go anywhere. Bonus hour dedicated to the new American investor starts after this short break. Stay tuned. 